And hello, everyone. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on our show... When you're thinking mathematically, it means that when you see a number, that's the beginning of a conversation, not the end. In other words, numbers matter, but only if you understand what they mean. These days, we are drowning in data and statistics and polls and charts and graphs, but it does us little good if we don't know how to interpret all that information. So saith my guest today on the show, mathematician Jordan Ellenberg. He has a new book out all about the ways that we get math wrong and how we can do better. And we, being uh, not only the unwashed masses, but also journalists, pundits, politicos of various stripes, and even scientists. It is a very important subject. I don't want to waste any time. Let's get straight to the interview. Jordan Ellenberg, I usually come up with my own way of introducing interviewees on this show, but um, I don't think I can top this little autobiography that you wrote on your website. Would you mind if I read it? Please do. I I wrote it a long time ago, so I hardly remember what it says. Well, here's what it says. I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, which is characterized by having many big movie theaters you can drive to, but none you can walk to. My parents are statisticians. My sister is a veterinarian in West Palm Beach. If you happen to have a sick horse in South Florida, I highly recommend contacting her. While I lived in Potomac, I spent a lot of time working math problems, writing small ironic stories, and listening to rock music made by depressed people. After a while, I went to Harvard, where I continued all three activities. The math problems became somewhat harder. I graduated from college in 1993 and then spent a year studying fiction writing at Johns Hopkins. I found that I missed working math problems, so I went back to Harvard and got a Ph.D. While there, I met Tanya Schlamm, who has a homepage, <laughs> which you link to. After some years in New Jersey, we now live with our two kids in Madison, where I'm a math professor at the University of Wisconsin. There are many things you can walk to here, but not a big movie theater. That's still pretty much accurate, actually. <laughs> well, with one major addition, at least, which is that you are now the author of How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. That's right. I guess I, I guess I put that on the front page. I didn't put it uh, back there in the bio. Not yet. But uh, this is a book, not so much about numbers, but how to think about them. That's right. And not just numbers, but all the various entities that make up the mathematical part of the world. You know, numbers and probabilities and, and shapes. And um, one of the ways I described the book was it's kind of a mathematical self-help book. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And an example... I mean, I've been thinking about this, you know, lately because a kind of thing, there's a chapter in the book called How Much Is That in Dead Americans? Yes. Um, <laughs> Explain what you mean there. And what I write about there is a very common practice. Basically, anytime something bad happens in a small place, typically a small country, people will say, well, the equivalent of that in America, the equivalent of those thousand people being killed in a small country, that's the equivalent of 50,000 or 500,000 people, Americans, being killed. And that's, that's a sort of fascinating combination of being numerically correct and morally kind of offensive. People in small countries, when 9-11 happened, nobody like from a tiny country was like, wow, that's like 15 of us being killed. <laughs> it's the same computation, but when you put it that way, it's evident how completely absurd it is to call those two events equivalent in any meaningful sense. There's so many uh, conceptual problems like that in, in the way we deal with statistics and numbers and current events. I mean, another real obvious one is the way people tend to round things off. I mean, if I say 7 out of 10, people might say, well, just round up to 10, right? But if I say 700,000 people, should I round it up to a million? And people often do. But that's a huge leap from 700,000 to a million. It's true, but there you already see sort of some of the complications, because after all, if you're comfortable with rounding 7 up to 10, well, if you were comfortable with rounding up 7 apples to 10 apples or $7 to $10, why not 7 hundred-thousands of people to 10 hundreds of thousands of people, which is a million, right? It shows you that in some sense, this world of interpretation is not necessarily a world of hard and fast rules, right? Maybe it's a world of, of guidelines. If anything, I actually think that often we don't round off enough. Oh, <laughs> really? You know, somebody will be talking about some city, and they'll be like, oh, the population of this city is 254,143, or something like that. Why give that last digit? Why give the last three digits? First of all, maybe there was some second in which that number was exactly right, but right. surely that is not true at the time you're reading the article. And if it happens by some incredible chance to be true at the moment you're reading the article, it won't be true at the moment that the next person <laughs> is reading the article. 
<laughs> so we do a lot of spurious precisions. So sometimes if we, um, we compute something to six decimal places when the inputs to, a, to it are not defined anywhere near so precisely. Uh, yeah, and, and one place where it really does matter, where it really has consequences, and you make a point of this, uh, is in elections. When the 2000 uh, presidential election was in dispute in Florida, hinging on a few hundred votes this way or that way, the fact is that there's so much noise in vote tabulations, so many ballots that are unclear, that it swamps the difference between uh, Al Gore getting 300 more votes or uh, George W. Bush getting 300 more votes. In the end, that little margin is much smaller than the uh, the margin of error in the election as a whole, right? Yeah, so I mean, in the end, like, those two guys were tied. I think that's the only meaningful thing you can say, that those two yes. people got the same number of yes. votes. And, you know, we want to live in a world where somebody won, right? That's the world that makes sense. Right. That's the world that our rules are set up for. And, um, uh, you know, in the con- when I write about that, this in the book, it's sort of near the end of the book where I sort of give myself a license to get a little bit philosophical, but... Um, you know, but I write about that as an example of formalism, which is a mathematical tradition, but also a legal tradition where we say, um, you know, where we have a very robust tradition of our laws sort of saying, okay, of course, in reality, we don't know who won. In reality, it's a tie. But um, we have a procedure, a procedure which assigns a winner. And we undergo that procedure, and whoever it says wins, like, that's who gets the electoral vote. So, I mean, one thing I talk about in the book is that, you know, we might be better off if our procedure for that was flipping a coin. <laughs> it would be more true to the reality of what was actually happening on the ground. Now, Jordan, I want to argue with there. Psychologically, that would, um, unfortunately, strip away the illusion that a real, you know, democratically uh, decisive decision had been made, whereas the, the election process gives us at least that illusion, right? And we need that. Okay, you can live in your <laughs> cotton-coated world of illusions. No, it's, um, I mean, I, I will concede that I think there are lots of political problems with deciding close elections by coin flip. So when I say it, I'm only sort of half serious about it as a matter of actual real-world policy. But, um, but it's not, it has a natural appeal. And, I mean, I was really struck by this a beautiful book by uh, the journalist Charles Seif, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. It might be Seif, um, called Proofiness. Um, where he writes about the, the Senate election in Minnesota uh, between Al Franken and Norm Coleman. And that was if, even closer. I think there was at least one or two recounts there. Yeah, and when you read about what actually happened during that election with, you know, ballot after ballot, which is completely unclear, and then this team of lawyers arguing over, is it going to count for Coleman, or is it going to count for Franken, or is it going to count for neither? I mean... You can't pretend that there was some kind of impartial scientific investigation of who got more votes, right? It was a question of whose lawyers were going to, like, break yeah. more noses and bloody yeah. more faces in the battle over each ballot. That was what decided it. And I think it's fair to look at that and be like, okay, would a coin flip strip away our illusions worse than that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, what sorts of conceptual errors drive you the craziest as you, say, read the news? as you follow the, the events of the day? Oh, there's so much competition. One particular one, and it was actually like one of the first things that I started with when I was writing the book, and it's right near the beginning of the book, um, is this phenomenon I call it in the book false linearity. But what I mean by this is that people tend to think that moving in a certain direction is either good or bad. So in the book I talk about this in, in, in the context of taxes, or people say, like, well, is it good for taxes to be higher, or is it good for taxes to be lower? And, of course, that is a meaningless question in general, because whether taxes should go up or go down, it kind of depends on, like, what taxes look like now. I mean, there's such a thing as taxes being too high, in which case they should go down, and there's such a thing as taxes being too low, in which case they should go up. And I think consciously, anyone who thinks about this, of course, knows this. Right? So, I mean, you can't sort of accuse someone of consciously having the thought taxes should always go up, no matter what they are, they should always be higher. Nobody actually consciously believes that. But people kind of, you know, people kind of work on heuristics. I mean, people often act as if they believe that, if that makes sense. Act as if they should always be higher? I think there's more of a tendency to say they shouldn't exist at all these days, right? Well, I think, I think there's both. That's why we have two political parties. 
But before you make any argument about the size of taxes, you'd have to be agreed on what your goals are. I mean, are your goals to increase government revenues and um, support existing services and, you know, sustain the Social Security and Medicare systems? Or is your goal to starve government out of existence? Even if you decide that your goal is to increase government revenue, even there it's not obvious that increasing taxes is always going to accomplish that. And in fact, sort of part of the uh, of the book is it's sort of it's sort of a defense of a sort of famous uh, piece of Reaganomics, the so-called Laffer Curve, which is just there to remind us that if you increase taxes beyond a certain point, um, government revenue actually starts to go down because it's sort of impossible for people to work and run businesses under those conditions. And so money just isn't made or it's made in these kind of informal niches uh, where the government can't reach. Um, that's, you know, the Laffer Curve is very out of fashion now, but of course, the point is that it's not that the curve was wrong. It's not, it, it certainly is the case that increasing taxes can decrease government revenue. It's just that I think that um, it's now general consensus among economists that we were not on the part of the curve in the 1980s. We were not on the part of the curve where increasing taxes would decrease government revenue and where decreasing taxes would increase government revenue. And the way we know that is because taxes were decreased and government revenue decreased along with it. Right. So, I mean, all the Laffer Curve says is that somewhere is a sweet spot. If your goal is to increase government revenues, you know, and fund the public sector, that there's such a thing as taxes that are too small and taxes that are too big, and somewhere in between is the Goldilocks, you know, moment of just right. Um, it doesn't say where that sweet spot is. And, in fact, that's probably a pretty complicated question to answer, don't you think? Yes, and the truth is that if you... Um like many things I write about in the book, I think you can draw like a nice picture on a napkin and qualitatively, <laughs> it's completely incontrovertible. But if you start to want to get quantitative and start to say, okay, like, well, where is that point? All of a sudden, it's not really like a one variable thing, right? Because there's lots of different kinds of taxes. There's lots of knobs you can turn, each one of which may have different effects. And so, um, you know, numerical answers like that are usually not so simple. Has your mathematics background uh, and your mathematical insight changed or affected your political views? I mean, does it weigh into your your ideological leanings? You know, it's a good question. I'll say a couple things. I would say that when I was younger, when I was in college, I certainly had a lot more faith than I have now. And I think learning a lot of math had to do with that, that if we could only kind of sit down and rationally work things out, then like a lot of political disagreements would disappear. I don't really think that anymore, but I certainly used to. And I think it's, um, it's a natural thing to think, especially when you're first learning mathematics, because you see like the incredible power of pure reason to build up these incredible cathedrals of structure from very meager beginnings to sort of hope that everything can be that way. Um, I guess I no longer think that politics is that way. It's interesting. One guy who I spoke with, who I did an interview with um, for Mother Jones, um, a guy called Chris Mooney, uh, he really believed that, um, that math makes you liberal, that kind of <laughs> mathematical frame of mind is naturally allied with liberal politics. Um, I think that's probably not right. I mean, for one thing, you can find... Um, mathematicians of every political persuasion. It's certainly true. One thing he mentioned is that if you actually were to say, okay, look at like American people who denote themselves as mathematicians, many more of them are liberals than conservatives. That's true, but you know, no more so than anyone else who like works for a university or something like that, right? I don't think there's sort of something special about math. About math. And I think um, in some sense when I think of like it seems to me more characteristic, actually, at least in America, of people on the right to sort of approach politics in this axiomatic way. I mean, that's something. Um, Anne Rand was kind of like this, right? Anne Rand liked to go around saying, like, A equals A. That was one of her famous <laughs> slogans, right? She would, I mean, because I think she felt like, if you disagree with me, like, you're saying A is something other than A, but I'm saying A equals A. Like, that's how, like, absolutely incontrovertible, like, my statements about human nature and morality you know, I think um, Antonin Scalia, who I write about a lot in the book, um, you know, he's somebody who would identify himself as a formalist, legally speaking, which I think has a lot in common with the formalism that is very popular among mathematicians. And what formalism means in both contexts is the way we figure out what's true is we should really start from some system of axioms that we all agree on and then understand what the consequences 
of those are. So for, for Scalia, that's the Constitution, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and Scalia is certainly notable among the justices in saying we shouldn't kind of be fuzzy-wuzzies and, like, think about the effects in the real world too much or, like, think about changing, evolving values. Like, we should think about, like, the words in the Constitution and what they mean and what they imply. Like, that's certainly his description of his own approach. Yeah, it, it, it strikes me as actually quite naive to think that math alone would give you the kind of um, guidance or direction uh, you'd need to choose a political position. I mean, it might bolster your sense of how to achieve a certain end, but it doesn't tell you what end is the right end. If you are happy with a society in which wealth is completely unequally distributed, that might lead you to choose one set of economic policies. And if you really are an egalitarian and you want to engineer that, that would lead you to choose a different set of policies. Matt doesn't tell you which one's the right way to go. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think there are, I mean, that's my view. I think there are people who have a much greater faith in the ability of mathematical reasoning to really determine the best policies uh, than I have. I think, you know, I think um, Condorcet, who is like one of the figures I learned a lot about and then wrote a lot about in the book, who is this, um, he was sort of the first social scientist and he was a big figure in the French Revolution. I think he was somebody who truly believed that mathing everything out would allow us to figure out the right leaders in some objective way and the right policies in some objective way. Like it was a very French Enlightenment kind of way to think. Um, and his story is kind of tragic because he's one of the people who really discovers um, these voting paradoxes, that if you sort of decide that you're going to set policy by majority rule, even if the individual voters are perfectly rational, um, the judgments arrived at by the, by the majorities can contradict themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, for someone like Condorcet, who was really convinced that we could kind of reason our way via democracy to perfect government, that was like a blow to the very core of his beliefs and his being. Yeah, yeah. Well, leaving aside the question of whether math can lead you to some moral truths or or political positions, let's look at the ways in which math is simply misused or misunderstood, even by people who have a clear set of goals. So one area that's concerned me a lot uh, in recent years, and I think a, a lot of other people who are aware of this, is in science itself. I mean, for years we've seen a ton of studies often those dealing with human beings, whether they're medical studies or psychological studies, that come out with sensational findings. And then year by year, sooner or later, they're found to be untrue or they lose some of their punch. And what was going to transform our understanding of something or was going to be a new wonder drug or a new treatment of some other kind goes away, dries up. This has been called by various names the um, replicability crisis, the decline effect. And you talk about it uh, quite extensively in the book. By the way, I raised this issue a couple of weeks ago on my show with uh, Percy Diaconis, another mathematician who just happens to have been a professor of yours at Harvard. Uh, And we talked about it a little bit, but I'd love to dig into it uh, more because you really go into detail about why this might be happening, why initially remarkable findings are not borne out subsequently. Yeah, and it is a complicated issue, and actually, it's funny because anyone who's versed in mathematics and statistics, I mean, this issue by now has been raised uh, in the press a lot, and you read lots of articles, and you're like, oh, like, why didn't they get this right? And then you try to write it, and you realize why people didn't get it right, because in 800 or 1,000 words, it is actually very hard to, like, nail down the subtleties of these issues. So that's one of the great things about writing at book length as opposed to writing at um, magazine length, which is what I'd mostly been doing before, that um, you don't have to kind of uh, cut the argument off when you run out of space. Um, You don't have to kind of iron out the subtleties because sometimes the subtleties are really what make the point. Um, So, I mean, as you say, sometimes something apparently remarkable happens. Um, There's some remarkable effectiveness of some drug, and then... The next time they try it, it doesn't work. Like, how can that be? Like, if it worked before, why doesn't it work now? Um, And one kind of slogan I return to again and again in the book is the fact that improbable things happen a lot. That seems weird, right? I mean, if something is improbable, that should mean that it doesn't happen a lot. 
But in fact, it's, it's just the opposite because there's so many opportunities for things to happen that even the very improbable ones happen all the time. You know, there's a famous story of Richard Feynman who sort of comes to give a lecture and he sort of starts his lecture and he says, like, you know what's amazing? I was like, what? what's so amazing? He's like, well, I was coming in here and I walked past the car and the license plate of the car said AQT158. Oh, can I jump in, Jordan? It's ARW357. Oh, I was just making that up. <laughs> I, didn't remember. I guess I remembered it started with A. Okay. Gotcha. But you know what? I'll bet. I'll bet Richard Feynman just made up. Yeah, I'm sure he did. <laughs> so there you go. In the Feynman tradition, I'm just making it up as I go. Um, and everyone, you know, then his audience is like, wait, I don't get it. Like, what? <laughs> so amazing. And Feynman's like, you know, the chance that it would be that particular combination of letters and numbers is incredibly small. Like, it's less than one in a million that I would happen to see that particular license plate. And, of course, that computation is completely correct, and yet it also somehow doesn't capture at all like how surprised you should be. Because every car has a license plate, so it's going to have some license plate. Like, yes, it's very unlikely or improbable that it was that particular one, and yet it would be super weird to go around in a state of constant astonishment Indeed. every time you saw something improbable. There may be a one in 10 million chance of my winning the lottery, but somebody's going to win it. And that somebody's going to feel really special. Right. And so it's, it would be very weird if you read in the paper, somebody won the Powerball, and you were like, <laughs> oh, my God, what are the odds that Gladys Grinspoon from Polo, Illinois, would have won the Powerball? That's incredible. That was like a 1 in 200 million shot. But, of course, you don't, like, fall over in a dead faint when you read in the paper that somebody won the Powerball because you're not surprised that somebody won, that that improbable thing happened somewhere. So... What does this have to do with what we were talking about? I may seem to have kind of gone far afield, but the point is this, that, um, and, and here for radio, I will exactly iron over some of the subtleties in this uh, theory of the so-called p-value that was developed by the great British statistician R.A. Fisher, but we're going to kind of iron it out and just say that in some sense, our rule of thumb for determining when a scientific experiment is successful, when we say that its results are remarkable, when we say the experiment was a success, the drug worked, the intervention had an effect, et cetera, et cetera, is precisely when we see something that is apparently improbable, that would be improbable if the drug had no effect. I, th I think we can get just a little bit more technical here and say that what scientists are interested in doing is, is ruling out as much as possible that their results are just some accident or fluke. And the way you do that is you apply some statistical formula and you figure out the likelihood that that result could have happened just by accident. And right, you're saying in the world where your drug has no effect, in yes. the world where your drug is, in the, is the same as a sugar pill, what's the chance that you would have seen results as good as the results that you got? And yes. you may find that if your results are pretty strong, you may say, oh, it's incredibly unlikely that that would have happened if the drug had no effect. And then you kind of publish your paper. But now here's the problem. So you may say, oh, my, that's as unlikely as like winning the lottery. <laughs> okay, but you know what? Like hundreds of thousands of people play the lottery, and maybe hundreds of thousands are too strong, but if there are 10,000 labs running experiments, then probably there are going to be a lot of improbable things that happen. A lot of drugs that don't work, but which by good luck actually happen to have a lot of people get better by chance. Right, right. And it's hard to know which those are. Indeed, and it's more disturbing, at least to me, that the actual threshold for saying something is statistically significant, a publishable scientific finding, that it's unlikely to be just pure random accident. The threshold is that it has only a 120th or less probability of being a fluke. In other words, 1 in 20 chance that it could have been just complete happenstance. That doesn't seem like a very high standard to hold scientific research to. Well, you know, I think I'll say a couple of things. One is that, you know, R.A. Fisher, the statistician who's in many ways the founder of modern statistics and who we have to thank for the whole mechanism of p-values, he certainly never intended for there to be a single fixed threshold, which we used once and for all and for all time to say, like, what was true and what was false. I mean, you can sort of go back to his writing and see that that was... Uh, that was not what he had in mind. Right. So let's not blame Fisher, but let's just say that 
for reasons almost themselves kind of accidental or just, you know, purely arbitrary, this standard came to be broadly applied. It's true, but I will push back on you a bit because you say, like, gosh, like, 1 in 20, that doesn't seem so improbable. That seems like we're, like, yeah. letting way too many false results yeah. in the gate. Well, here's the thing. You may say, like, I wish we lived in a world where the threshold were 1 in 1,000, and then we wouldn't have so many false <laughs> things that we were endorsing as true. But then, I mean, there is a cost because then you're going to throw out a lot of effective drugs and say we couldn't prove they worked. Uh-huh. And why, why is that? I mean, there's a trade-off, right? I mean, you can set your threshold wherever you want. And if you set it, if you set it very stringently, it means you're going to say no. You're going to reject a lot, more, a lot more things, including ones that actually do work. And if you set it very leniently, it means you're going to accept a lot of th- more things, including many that don't work. You know, life is full of trade-offs. And actually, the point of view that I associate with, with Nyman and Pearson, two other uh, great statisticians who were contemporaries of Fisher, um, they had like a very beautiful and austere point of view. It's kind of hard for a lot of people to accept, and you know, it's a sort of a moral question whether you should accept it, but their point of view was when we set a threshold like that, we're doing a cost-benefit analysis. They're saying we should never do an experiment and say like, oh, we proved that the drug worked or we proved that the drug didn't work. Their point of view is we, we just have a rule for saying which drugs we're going to approve and which drugs we're going to not, and we're going to try to design the rule to have the best system as pos- possible, to sort of win that trade-off as best we can, to find that, as you called it, Goldilocks point, where, yes, we accept that we're approving some drugs that don't actually work, and we're rejecting some drugs that do actually work. Um, and depending on where we set our threshold and depending on how we set our rules, um, there's a trade-off between those two things, but we can't live in a world that's perfect. So we just try to make that trade-off so that we do as well as we can. So, you know, I consider them, again, part of that formalist tradition that our legal system is based on, because what they're doing is very much like what we do in criminal courts, right? We have a system of criminal procedures, and we do have a system where we say, okay, if evidence is obtained improperly, we throw it out. Even if it may be fairly definitive evidence of guilt or innocence. Exactly, because I think we accept in our legal system that the point of the legal system is to be just, not to be correct. So it's pragmatic. And I think the way you put it, um, who are those two statisticians again, Pearson Um, and... Nyman and Pearson. I think you put it this way. They said statistics is about making decisions, not answering questions. Right, and that's their view. And I emphasize in the strongest possible term that it's not everybody's view. Right, but I mean, I, I mean, part of what I think is so interesting about statistics is that there really are fundamental philosophical disagreement about what the point of statistics is and how it should work. Yeah, so we'll get into more of those, but let's stick with the, the scientific research uh, problem, known again as the decline effect or the replicability crisis, for a moment longer. So what you're saying is that there's a trade-off if you pick a threshold of quote statistical significance that's so high you're going to miss a lot of valid results. And if you pick it in a way that's low, you're going to let some bad results slip through. Yep. And when your p-value, which is this 120th number um, that is you know, the standard these days, it says that if there's only a 1 in 20 chance that my result is completely fluky, uh, random noise, then... If there's only a 1 in 20 or less chance, then might as well publish it and treat it as though it's probably correct. Now, the problem there, of course, is that if you run a lot of studies, that means maybe 1 in 20 of those studies is going to be possibly junk, misleading junk. And um, actually, since tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of scientific studies are done every year, that means a lot of studies that may be junk, right? Right, and that's really what's new, right? The scale at which we are able to scale and speed with which we're able to do experiments now absolutely dwarfs anything that was present when these methods were being set up. Right. And so you get, let's say we do have a flood of studies, and, and let's assume that they're done well, too, and that's, that's not necessarily a fair assumption. Let's assume that they're done well. Let's assume that they're done in good faith uh, and very rigorously, nonetheless, maybe one out of 20 is, like I said, happenstance and not a real um, a meaningful result. So those come out, and sometimes they're quite remarkable. People latch onto them, the press reports them, they're trumpeted far and wide. And then sooner or later, if we're lucky, other scientists come along and try to repeat them. And 
because uh, the more they try to repeat them, the less likely it is that they're going to have that same result, you know, regression to the mean. Sooner or later, the novel, the novel finding is no more. It vanishes, well, right? Well, it doesn't. I mean, some things actually do work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean a certain percentage right. of what we thought were breakthroughs turn out not to be. Yes, and that's, you know, I don't think we should consider that such a tragedy. I think we should consider that part of doing business. I mean, it's, you know, and the scale of this, it, it's, it's very contested. I mean, there's a famous paper by John Ioannidis, which has had a huge influence, called Most Published Research Findings Are False. You right, know, he's a, sta- a Stanford statistician, yeah. Um, you know, and that's, but here's the thing of it. I think what I, what I say in the book is that um, we should think of a successful experiment, let's say one that meets the classical p-value threshold, we should think of that as the detective, not the judge. Mm-hmm. Right, if we could keep this crime metaphor going. That <laughs> is a signal to you, hey, maybe something's going on here. But it is not the final verdict. Right. And that's the thing. You know, I think on some level, I think journalists actually do know this. And it's funny. You will see if you see, like, you're saying, oh, you see a newspaper article and it's spread far and wide and it says, here it is, like, this thing cures, like, every kind of cancer plus grows your hair back, whatever. Like, you'll see an article like that. But, you know, always that article will contain a sentence somewhere saying, like, well, like, this study was somewhat small, and the findings are preliminary, and more research is needed. You know what I mean? That's a cover-your-ass move on the part of a lot of journalists, though. It really is. Yeah, but that's the thing. I think you hear that, and you read it to yourself kind of in the same tone of voice that you read, like, the warning tag on your right. pillow. You know, right. do not remove. You're like, oh, yeah, like, some lawyer, like, made them say that. But no, the reason they say that is because that is actually true. Right, Like, right. you should actually read that in a loud voice, because... That is actually the right spirit in which to read it. Like, yes, it's a warning that's repeated again and again, but that's because it's actually a good warning, like don't touch the stove. You know, yes, you say it again and again, but it's actually important. It's important, but people don't necessarily read it or take it seriously, as you say, and, you know, the new finding, quote-unquote, gets blown out of proportion. It may start a trend. Um, In fact, it may even lead to drug approval, let's say, which then turns out, you know, down the line to have been premature, Right? So, I mean... Well, one thing about drug approval is it certainly creates the circumstances under which you have a very big experiment. Yes, it it does. It does. Unfortunately, at the expense of some people sometimes, you know, the experimental subjects, the public. But not approving drugs also has an expense. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys. uh, Robert here, busting into the proceedings for just a moment. Uh, because I fear that I might have left a misleading impression when we were talking about that thing called the p-value. What I said was uh, that when you use a p-value of 120th or 0.05 as your cutoff for publishability in scientific studies, one uh, impact of that would be that one in 20 of all published studies might end up being statistical red herrings. That is that the results that they report might just be random coincidence and not evidence for whatever the researchers were trying to prove, like say, the effectiveness of a new drug. Well, uh, I would have been right if, in fact, the measured p-value of all those studies was exactly 120th. But I've been thinking about it and realized that that is not the case. In fact, uh, 120th is the highest p-value that they can have in order to meet the publication bar, and uh, no doubt a lot of them have p-values that are lower, some much lower. And that means that the total percentage of published studies that are bogus for the reasons I was talking about would be less. Now, it would still be a significant number, and it would still go a long way toward explaining what we call the decline effect or the replicability crisis, the fact that uh, all too often initially promising scientific findings just don't pan out when people attempt to repeat the experiments or the observations. So our overall point remains valid, but I was overstating things there a bit. Okay, that's all. Let's get back to the interview. I would love it if you could tell me what is really one of the the great parables um, in your book uh, about the kinds of statistical misunderstandings that we get into. This is the story of the Baltimore stockbroker. The Baltimore stockbroker is is kind of a mythological character uh, among people who talk about statistics. And here's the situation. Um, You're sitting in your house and you get unsolicited a stock newsletter in the mail that says, oh, this particular stock 
is going to go up next week. Be ready. This is a great buy. And maybe, you know, you ignore it as you ignore some such things. But you happen to look in the business section the next week, and indeed, that stock did go up, just as the newsletter had predicted. Well, okay, that, I mean, the stock's either going to go up or go down, so you figure it's a 50-50 chance. But the next week, you get another newsletter from the same guy with another prediction. This other stock, oh, it's going to go down. It's doomed. Sell it off if you have it. And you look in the paper the next week, and indeed, just as the stockbroker predicted, uh, that stock has gone down. And each week, you get a new newsletter from the Baltimore stockbroker, and each week, the prediction is correct. And you start to become more and more amazed until after 10 weeks have gone by and the guy's gotten 10 straight picks in a row correct, um, you start to feel like this guy's really got something. This guy's figured out how to predict stocks or he has some insider information or somehow the tips he's giving me are good and I should invest my money with this guy. Yeah, so that's, I'm the, par- that's the parable. That's part one. <laughs> so I'm going to plow my life savings into this guy's stock picks. Yes, um, you are. Because he's just, I mean, he's beating the odds again and again and again. Uh, key question, why is he from Baltimore? That's just the way I've heard the story told. <laughs> um, I mean, because as far as I, I, I really looked to try to find out if this uh, game had ever been run in the real world, and I was not able to, I was not able to find a real-world example. Okay, so let's go to part two. There's a real flaw in my reasoning, me, the investor. There is a part two. That's why yes. it's good you have a steady job in radio, <laughs> because you're about to lose all of your savings. Um, because what you don't know um, is that you are not the only person who was getting newsletters from the Baltimore stockbroker. In fact, that first week, he sent out 10,000 newsletters. But here's the thing. They were not all the same. 5,000 of them said that stock was going to go up, 5,000 of them said it was going to go down. And after that first week, there were 5,000 people who thought the guy was an idiot, and 5,000 who thought, huh, this guy got his, tip, his first tip right. Maybe there's something going on there. Well, as you can imagine, 5,000 people never hear from him again. And the other 5,000, including you, are going to get another newsletter the next week. And so week by week, the number of newsletters he's sending out is getting cut in half. But by the end, after 10 weeks, there's still about 10 people who have gotten 10 straight correct picks in a row. Um, and because they don't have access to the information of just how many times this guy tried, they are convinced, because all they know is the newsletters they got, that the Baltimore stockbroker has a foolproof method of picking stocks. So the marks in this story have no idea about all the bad predictions this guy has uh, published, because they never see him. And this, exactly. and, and this phenomenon really applies to all kinds of uh, arenas out there. I mean, it, it applies to mutual funds in some cases. Yeah, so that's uh, the result of a practice called incubation, where, um, where a mutual fund, if they're trying out a bunch of different investment strategies, they may have dozens or a hundred different funds that they're trying out, some of which are going to beat the market and some of which are going to lag the market, right, because they're trying different things. And what's quite typical is... Maybe they'll have those hundred funds running in-house, and they'll see which ones succeed and which ones fail. The ones that fail, the ones that don't beat the market, will get thrown in the trash. The one that succeeded, maybe it is just one, then they start selling them. They say, look, this fund, this strategy, beat the market the last five years in a row. That's pretty good, or at least it sounds pretty good, unless you know how many chances they had to beat the market five years in a row. Because if you give yourself enough chances, you're going to do that by luck alone whether you have any real strategy or not. Sure, if you bet on all the horses, uh, one's going to come in a winner. Exactly. But by only publishing or, or letting the public know about the winners, you make yourself look really smart and like you've got some special edge, which you don't. Exactly. And so that, this is the great challenge that, in some sense, to make good inferences, you have to know not just what did happen, but, so to speak, all the things that could have happened. You have to know all the experiments that were tried, not just the ones that succeeded. Now, this happens in science, too, uh, right? Because there is something that people have called publication bias. Or more picturesquely, the file drawer problem. The file Um, drawer problem. Called that because, again, very similarly, if you test a thousand different interventions for a disease or something like that, or or a hundred thousand different genetic markers, the, the, the experiments that don't give any success, you can't get published sort of not the way scientific publication works. Um, so you give yourself lots of chances, you try lots of things, and when you hit a success, you publish it. But when you don't, that paper goes in the file drawer, right? It doesn't go out in a journal, and so people can't see it. And so the scientific community is in many ways 
simultaneously like the Baltimore stockbroker and also like the victims of the Baltimore stockbroker all at the same time, because the community is seeing the results of the experiments that were successful, but not the results of the experiments that failed. Wow, Baltimore stockbrokering themselves. Exactly. (laughs) The best con is always the one you run on yourself. (laughs) Did you make that up? That's a great saying. I like it. Off the cuff. Now, I, I do want to make it clear, lest anybody misunderstand us, that we are not trying to add fuel to anti-science denialism here. Um, what we're saying is that there are statistical gray areas where, in order to really, really establish something scientifically, you need to repeat the experiment or the observation over and over again. And by that you know, cumulative process, indeed, science establishes real things. <laughs> we are not trying to to say to people, oh, now uh, all of science is in doubt. No way. No, not at all. And, of course, it's also important to keep in mind that science is informed by theory, right? We are not kind of like blind creatures who sort of make up experiments to try and then sort of obey robotically rules about statistical significance. I mean, we have an understanding of how many scientific processes are supposed to behave. We sort of understand in advance um, which effects are more likely and which are not, like which theories make sense and which do not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, again, over time and by consensus, you come up with um, scientific understanding that you can actually rely on. So, you know, when it comes to climate change, <laughs> agreed on by the vast majority of climate scientists, that does not fall into the same category as a brand new finding, you know, that announces some breakthrough that um, has never been seen before. Right. It's not the same as, as, you know, putting a razor blade under a pyramid and sort of finding that it got sharper. <laughs> Where'd you come up with that one? People used to do that. Did you not ever read an Omni magazine in the 80s? People were really into that pyramid power. I'm sure you can go back and find studies of it. I want to talk a little bit more about deeper understandings of statistics and some of the debates that surround them. And I was hoping you could explain something to us that uh, is a really important principle, Bayesian inference. Sure. Well, this is, I mean, it's a fascinating subject because it is a style that has sort of gone out of fashion and statistics and now has very much come back in. Um, And it's actually, uh, in the book, I sort of, I think I stay in the most uncontroversial waters of this, and it gets much deeper, and there get to be like really serious philosophical disputes. But the, the part that I would talk about, I mean, it reminds me of something that Fisher himself, who really created the p-value in its modern form and is primary person who's responsible for its basic status as a fundamental tool of statistics. Um, but he himself um, said that nobody uses like a fixed statistical significance threshold once and for all and for all time. Instead, he says you're supposed to um, interpret each claim in the light of its own evidence. Um, so not just to be a robot, but to sort of actually look at a claim, like, you know, whether exercise is good for you, you have one prior opinion about that, whether putting a razor blade under a pyramid can make it sharper, you have a rather different prior belief about that. I mean, I think any reasonable person would say, you should use those. You should use your knowledge. You should assign more credence to a hypothesis that makes sense than one that makes no sense, even if the statistical results of the experiment on the two things is exactly the same. Oh, you know, um, while you were saying that, and I don't want to lose the thread, but something just occurred to me. When you said put a razor blade under a pyramid, and I said, Mm -hmm. do people actually do that? I was thinking of someone putting a razor blade under, you know, the pyramid of Cheops in Egypt, which you meant, I'm now realizing, was just under any pyramidal structure, you know, like a little pyramid-shaped model, right? Yes, yeah, so as I recall from my reading of Omni Magazine, I think what people did in practice was use like a little kind of a pyramid made out of metal struts that was like desk size. But I mean, certainly they believed that the reason that the pyramid of Cheops looked like it did was that the Egyptians were like in tune with like the mystical power of the pyramid. So I think they believed they operated on the same principle. Okay, excuse that digression. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's get back to Bayes. <laughs> okay. And, and by the way, Bayes was a, uh, a clergyman who came up with this really interesting understanding of statistical inference, right? That's right, although in some sense, Bayes' rule itself is a rather simple and 
uncontroversial formula for computing what's called a conditional probability, which just which simply means um, often in life you don't ask for a naked probability. What's the probability that such and such a thing occurs? You say, what's the probability that such and such thing occurs given some other piece of data that I have? You know, if you want to know uh, what's the probability that my team's going to win their baseball game tomorrow, um, you actually need more information to give a good numerical answer. You know, are you playing against the Oakland A's or are you playing against the Houston Astros? So what you're really asking in life is almost always a conditional probability. Given that my team is playing the Houston Astros, what's the probability that they're going to win? Pretty good. So, so what's the deep principle here, and, and what does it mean for our understanding of statistics? I would say that the best way to express it in words um, is to say the following, that you shouldn't um, take the approach that, okay, here are the results of the experiment, therefore, how confident should I be that the effect is real? That's a typical way of describing what we do when we do science, but I think a more Bayesian approach would be to say, um, the results of the experiment tell you how to alter your degree of belief that the effect is real. So if you start believing it very strongly, then you have a different final opinion than if you started by not believing it at all. Yeah, and this gets back to our story about the physicist Richard Feynman, really, and his joke about um, spotting a certain license plate number in a parking lot. If he had been thinking about that particular license plate number as special, you know, maybe because it had some encrypted meaning for him, and then he saw it in the parking lot. Oh, wow, his mind would have been blown. If, on the other hand, he just saw some random number that meant nothing, big deal, right? Right, it's like if he had seen a license plate that said, like, Andrew, <laughs> he'd be like, hey, I think that guy's name is probably Andrew who drives that car. <laughs> if he saw a license plate that said Zakalot, he probably wouldn't think that guy's name was Zakalot. He would probably <laughs> think nothing of it, right? And the reason is that because he has a reasonable prior belief, like a theory to which he assigns some non-trivial amount of probability that there are people named Andrew in the world, those people drive cars, those people sometimes get vanity plates that have their first name on them. Like, that is not an unreasonable idea. Whereas he does not have a strong prior belief that there are, like, tons of people named Zakalot driving, driving around. So this says that, you know, statistics and probability are in some ways, um, our, our understanding of them is in some ways uh, a comment on our own knowledge of the world rather than what the world itself is, independent of us. Yes, I think that's fair to say. Although, again, depending on your philosophical stance, like some people might be like, what are you talking about the world independent of us? There's no such thing. I mean, that would be one <laughs> approach that you, sure. could, that you could take. Sure. Um, on the one hand, when you put it one way, like, you would say to yourself, well, that's, of course, like, how can you not use what you actually know about the world when you're doing science and trying to make inferences? Um, but you do sort of give up something, too. You give up um, maybe what you might call sort of some belief in objectivity. Right, right. Well, maybe, again, I'm, I'm misapplying the idea of Bayesian here. But, you know, there is an interpretation of statistics and probability that says that it's really all about your knowledge. If I say, what are the chances that I'm going to roll a six when I throw a die? Um, and I say, well, they're obviously one in six. Well, that's true from the standpoint of my knowledge of the, of the die. But if I knew more about the physics of the throw, if I knew its velocity and rotation and all of that, I might be able to say, oh, no, there's a 0% chance you'll roll a six in that throw, right? Right. Well, for instance... Your knowledge might not include the fact that the die actually has all ones on it. Well, that's true too. I so. mean, for all you know, so it is kind of a conditional probability, right? So implicitly, you didn't say it, but implicitly, you're saying conditional on it being a fair die labeled the way a standard die is labeled. So the Bayesian method, if I understand it right, re requires that you you state a belief at the beginning and then you modify it through observation, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll tell you why I'm hedging a little bit because. Um, there's Bayes' rule itself, like the theorem of Bayes, which no one disputes, which is a completely uncontroversial point. Um, there is a practice called Bayesian statistics, which it's more than just accepting Bayes' rule. It's sort of a different style. I think that's what um, I'm talking about. What What is that exactly? Well, I mean, to really sort of tease out the difference between Bayesian statistics and what might be called a more 
classical, what's typically called a frequentist view. That's a little deeper than where I go in the book. But to a first approximation, I would say this, that um, frequentists, the sort of the, the more traditional mode of statistics that comes from Fisher, um, does not like to talk about things like what is the probability that this cancer drug works. It tries to avoid saying things like that. Um, and with a good reason, because after all, the cancer drug, it either works or it doesn't work. It's not subject to chance. It's not like a roll of a die. So I think in that classical language, you can say, how can we even talk about the probability that it works? Mm. Um, Bayesian statisticians, I think, are more comfortable with making statements like that, maybe because their conceptualization of probability is a little bit more having to do with degree of belief. And you can certainly talk about how certain you are or how confident you are that a drug works or doesn't work. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is that the habits of Bayesian statisticians is, and, and again, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing before and probably incurring like lots of like angry phone calls from Bayesian hornets, but um, <laughs> I would say it's less their habit to ask yes or no questions, like, okay, does this work? Yes or no? Are we going to approve it? Yes or no? And they're more apt to uh, do what you might call model estimation, like say, like, let's make our best estimate for how well this drug works. You know, if that's a positive number, then we're saying it keeps you from dropping dead. If it's a negative number, maybe it helps you drop dead. Um, maybe it's close to zero. Maybe it's far from zero. So that would be, I think, more the style of the questions those guys tend to ask. I'm having a little trouble here, though. I'm seeing a distinction without a difference in the sense that while the the semantics are different, you know, should we talk about whether probability applies here or whether just degree of confidence is the right term? But does it really make a difference in, in the ultimate results that they that these two camps get? Um, sometimes it does. Often it doesn't. Um, I, it, you're absolutely right that there is a large part of the distinction which, um, which doesn't affect practice that much. And indeed, I think like many working scientists and statisticians today, um, you know, including my parents, I think don't particularly brand themselves as frequentists or Bayesians, but rather sort of use techniques characteristic of either philosophy as seems to fit best the problem at hand. But there are different techniques. It's not just a matter of labeling the results differently. That's right. Hmm. Very interesting. And you just uh, mentioned something I wanted to ask you about. You are the son of not one, but two statisticians, both biostatisticians, right? It's true. The maximal number of statisticians you can possibly be the son of. <laughs> Bi biologically, I mean. I've maxed out. <laughs> what influence did this this parentage have on you and your, your thinking about the world? I mean, you did well, turn into a mathematician, though not a statistician by specialty. It's, it's true. I mean, and I, I definitely grew up in a very math-rich household. Um, and I, I actually, I mean, I certainly thought about statistics, and I studied it uh, when I was younger. Uh, and to be honest, I think I found it somewhat too hard in the sense that the difficulty of statistics is rather different from the difficulty of mathematics. There are philosophical difficulties that mathematics does not have or has in much less measure. I felt much more comfortable always with math, where you really know what you're trying to do. There's no controversy about that. It might be very hard to do, but you know you're trying to prove theorems. You know what it means to prove a theorem. Um, you know that basically people agree on which theorems are proved and which theorems are not, whereas in statistics, as we've been discussing, even the basic methodologies are much more up for grabs. You know, it's funny because statistics gets this label of being dull, boring, uh, mechanical, and all of that. I remember when I took it in college, uh, people said, oh, that's just boring. You just apply formulas. I found it fascinating because I, I have a philosophical bent, and it raised big questions for me that I still find completely compelling. Um, so I guess that's what you're talking about. But do do working statisticians even worry about those things, or do they just, um, to use, I think this was Feynman's phraseology when he was talking about the Copenhagen uh, interpretation in physics, shut up and calculate? You know, I would say probably most working statisticians don't worry about it, but I think that's true in any field, right? Most practitioners, like, don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about the philosophical underpinnings of the grounds beneath their feet. Um, but it's good that there are some who do. 
Now, we said you're you're the son of two mathematicians who became a mathematician. Was there ever any rebellion? Um, I'm wondering if perhaps that little side trip in your um, professional biography uh, where between getting your undergraduate degree at Harvard in math and getting your Ph.D. at Harvard in math, you went off and studied creative writing at Johns Hopkins. Was that was that sort of your anti-math uh, impulse? If it was a rebellion, it was a very short-lived and unsuccessful one. I think from the first moment, I missed doing math and was like, I mean, I love writing. I mean, I love the novel. I love fiction. Um, you know, I think I've tried to find a way to sort of bring what I learned that year uh to the process of writing about mathematics and writing about science more generally. Um, but as much as I loved it, you know, it stinks compared to doing math. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, I mean, you went on to write a novel, uh, which got a nice blurb, by the way, from John Barth, who I'm guessing you might have studied with at Johns Hopkins. Ah, you figured out how the game is played. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny your obviously correct guess. <laughs> But you liked fiction enough to actually take it all the way to uh, creating your own novel. Yeah, no, I mean, I joke. I mean, I really do like it a lot, and obviously I I value it, but I think, um, you know, the day-to-day rewards are not as great. You know, a day when you wake up and you know you need to write, you got to kind of make yourself do it. And a day when you wake up, is you're going to do math. Is it that you jump out of bed? Well, now that's, that's really interesting. So you don't find, I mean, the traditional bugaboos of writing the, the 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 blank page the dread the you know procrastination um all of the second guessing that doesn't enter your your math well look i'm not going to say never i mean there's some projects that uh fill you with more joy than others and there's some projects where you sort of accidentally do the fun part first and then <laughs> in math and then there's some you know residue that you have left to do that's not fun at all i mean of course uh you know no piece of work that matters is like entirely joy from beginning to end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it, but I'm, not, I'm saying I have not forgotten how to procrastinate, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> but you're saying it really doesn't suffer from some of those famously vexing problems uh, of fiction writing. Well, at least for me, I think the big difference is that in fiction writing, you never really know whether you've done it right. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, of course, you can tell the difference between good and bad. Well, maybe even that, mostly you can tell the difference. But... Um, you know, you very, at least for me, you very, you very rarely have that feeling in writing that you're like, I got it all the way down to the bottom. I got it. This is this problem I'm trying to deal with is completely solved. Um, that's what math is about, getting to that point. Right. So, so the, one of the problems with writing is you never know whether you got it right, and another is, am I really being original? You know, or or has this been said just as well or better by some other writer? It's true, and in math, um, you know, there are more benchmarks. In some sense, I mean, not everyone will agree with what I'm about to say, but um, the point of math is not really solving problems. The point is understanding stuff. But how do you know that you've understood something? The way you know is that you can solve problems that other people couldn't solve. Right, right. So I think of solving the problems as a kind of measure of your level of understanding, but that kind of benchmark is very useful, and many other areas don't have that. Yeah. You have some great little aphorisms uh, about mathematics in your book, and one of them is, to do mathematics is to be at once touched by fire and bound by reason. I think everybody knows about the reason part, but what's the fire part? It's funny, because I actually would have said, and part of what I'm doing in that passage, if I remember correctly where it is in the book, um, I think the idea that to do mathematics is to kind of be touched by fire, that is to have access to some kind of transcendent and rather dangerous realm, I think it's a very popular stereotype about mathematics, in fact. So rather than, I would have thought that that would be the part that would be more familiar and that I'm kind of <laughs> pushing back against it a little bit. Uh, okay, so tell me, though, what, what do you think people, when they say dangerous, yes, esoteric for sure, because most people you know, feel like math is a, a region that's completely inaccessible to them, uh, but dangerous? Yeah, I think people, um, you know, this, this is what, I, and I write about it in the book, there's a wonderful essay by David Foster Wallace about um, rhetoric and the math melodrama, I think that's the title. He was, um, by by the way, of course, most famous as a novelist, but he was a math major at Amherst, wasn't he? 
I, he was, I think he was philosophy major, but there is a certain precinct of philosophy which is almost indistinguishable from math to the naked eye, and that's the kind of philosophy he did. Ah, okay. He certainly knew a lot of math. Um, he wrote a book about math. He wrote a book about Cantor's set theory, kind of in between novels. And actually, the, the, the quote I start my book with, it's a quote from Bertrand Russell. Um, I got it from his notes for his book. I was looking at his papers are in an archive at the University of Texas, and I was reading through his notes for this book he wrote um, about set theory and found this quote from Bertrand Russell that he'd flagged, thinking of using it as the sort of frontispiece for his book, which he chose not to use. So I used it. And the quote is? Oh, I don't have it right in my <laughs> mind. I, remember, I didn't memorize it. <laughs> but, but getting back to the, ma- the danger part. That's what part. we have copy and paste for. <laughs> but getting back to the danger part. David Foster Wallace and the danger of math. That's right. So I think what he talks about is that there is this stereotype of mathematicians as crazy, and in some sense crazy because they do math, and math drives the math. They have access to these realms of like tremendous abstraction. Um, and I think you see that again and again in like lots of popular treatments of math, from, um, you know, from the movie Pi to the movie of A Beautiful Mind. Um, there's a book called Presumed Innocent by Scott Turo, which was a huge bestseller when I was a kid, which sort of turns on the same trope. I mean, uh, you really see, like, mathematics tied to insanity, uh, I think, very commonly. Whereas I think mathematics is actually a pretty sane enterprise, one of the sanest that we have. Mm. Yeah, well, you see the idea of genius also tied in the, you know, in popular representations to eccentricity, craziness, quirkiness, you know. When actually, yeah, sometimes it is a cup, uh, you know, associated with those things, but sometimes it's not. There are brilliant people who are very level-headed. So I think what I what I'm trying to do with that aphorism, which I'm I'm glad that you liked, um, because I don't want to deny that there's like an incredibly exciting feeling about doing mathematics and feel like you've just, you know, I think the way I describe it in the book is like you feel like you've put your hand on the wire. You know, you can sort of feel the charge. You're like, wow, I've actually touch something. I've, like, found something. I mean, it's amazing. But it is not like, um, you know, you're not just, like, running around freaking out, right? It's not that kind of fire. It's not that kind of electricity, right? It's something that is, as I say, very channeled, very directed, very focused. Is part of the excitement, though, that you feel like you're, I don't know, an explorer, that you're entering some new territory that no human being has entered, and you're seeing it for the first time? Yeah, absolutely. And that is, I mean, you know, you can do it without leaving your easy chair. <laughs> Here's another good aphorism from you on mathematics. Um, Pure mathematics can be a kind of convent, a quiet place safely cut off from the pernicious influences of the world's messiness and inconsistency. I grew up inside those walls. You know, pure mathematics is a very special place. And I think for me, and that part of the book where that comes from, I'm writing about you know, starting out in journalism and sort of like really discovering the joys of writing about, so to speak, math in the wild, which is often not the same kind of math that we do when we do our research, but uh, there's mental interplay back and forth between the two. Mm. Um, Jordan, we've barely scratched the surface of all the issues of mathematical interpretation that you uh, describe in the book and explain how they often impact our understanding or misunderstanding of the everyday world. And I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them, but I want to ask you, do you allow yourself, I mean, even with all the knowledge you have of these things and and the uh, strong grasp you have of the underlying math, do you set aside certain areas of your life for pure indulgent irrationality? Yeah, I'd say I set aside about 99% of my life for that. (laughs) 99% of your life is non-mathematical? We are what we are. We're like creatures of flesh. Maybe it sounds paradoxical, but in the book, I try, as I said, both to sort of show just how incredibly powerful and rich and deep and enlightening those methods are. But at the same time, I'm not a math supremacist. I think that is one of the lenses through which we see the world. It's one of the tools that our cognition has, but it's one among many, and we should use them all. I was walking around the other day, and I saw a woman pushing a baby stroller. She was wearing a T-shirt that said, I am data-driven. Is that taking it too far? Well, no, I think if the, I think if the baby were wearing the same T-shirt <laughs> matching, that would be taking it too far. <laughs> no, and I mean, I, I, 
I'm going to maybe now this would be the most controversial thing I'll say in this whole interview. I will I endorse that T-shirt. Really? Do you? You don't think I'm this, okay with that T-shirt? You don't think this new craze for data-driven everything is in in at least in some cases um, a leap of faith that is unwarranted. That is, as soon as some result is accompanied by tons of data, as soon as we have big data, we are understanding things. Well, that's certainly a danger, right? And I think that, but what's the but what's the solution to that danger? It's not to tell people to mistrust quantities, to mistrust graphs and numbers. It's to give people the tools to meaningfully engage with those numbers so that the number is the beginning of a conversation and not the end, right? Because the numbers are not going to stop coming. I mean, look, I kind of see it, you know, if you live up here in the northern part of the United States, you know that there used to be glaciers, right? Mm-hmm. They came down, they crushed everything, and then they rolled back. But they left their, tr- they left their trace, right? They left their mark. You can see their shape on the landscape. Um, is there a craze? Like, sure. Are there parts of it that are overhyped? Sure. Um, and those parts will roll back, but they'll leave their trace, right? Gotcha. And I think the trace will be good. So would you agree with me that with big data comes big responsibility? Yes, and I think that the people who are really working with that stuff intelligently, I think they understand that. Well, Jordan, um, I really appreciate your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and my understanding has definitely increased as a result of it. Awesome. I'm glad. You should get a (laughs) T-shirt. I'll be able to buy a shipload of T-shirts with the killing I'm about to make of some hot stock tips I just got from some guy in Baltimore. Jordan Ellenberg is a professor of mathematics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He is also the author of How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. And by the way, uh, that quote from Bertrand Russell that opens the book, the one that Jordan wasn't able to quite recall from memory, well, it is, What is best in mathematics deserves not merely to be learned as a task, but to be assimilated as a part of daily thought and brought again and again before the mind with ever-renewed encouragement the very point of Jordan's book. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, bidding you adieu until next week and offering ever-renewed encouragement to make this show part of your daily thought and bring it again and again before your mind by listening online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or via SoundCloud or iTunes, or on the go using your favorite mobile podcast app. (laughs) 